as a physio or practitioner working with an athlete, what you can do is you can say, well, look, actually they're strong enough. Their, their peak forces are, you know, some of the highest in the cohort. But when we ask them to produce that force quickly, they're unable to, their rate of force development is below the normals for this group or for these rugby players, as an example. And then what you do is then you change the program. So there's no point hammering at strength then if actually rate of force development is the problem and possibly the limiting factor that's going to stop them being able to protect that shoulder in the right moment at the right time in the right space. Hey, this is More Than Velocity. I'm Bart Pear here with Jordan Osegar and Ryan Croton. And today we have a special guest on the podcast, Ben Ashworth. Uh, ben and Ryan have actually known each other for, for quite a few years now. Um, I'm really excited about this podcast because it's always nice to have an expert who is in other fields besides baseball. Ben's in baseball, but, um, but uh, has experience in baseball. But he's also, um, if you're familiar with European football, he's the director of performance for AC Sparta. Um, and he's also got uh, quite a history as a physiotherapist, um, kind of in the physio world. He developed a thing called the ASH test, which we're going to talk about today, and a number of different things um, dealing with the shoulder and, uh, and performance. So, Ben, first of all, it's good to have you here. Um, you have your own podcast uh, called Inform Performance that you co-produce. Uh, I, I urge everybody to check that out as well. Uh, and just before you jump in, Ben, I'm going to let Ryan set this up and explain how he, he got to know you, and uh, and we'll just go from there. Yeah, so today I'm wearing my glasses because I want to be like Ben. Um, ben and I had uh, met uh, quite a while ago. My first experience going to a winter meetings, actually, with the Los Angeles Angels. I, I really sought out to uh, to speak to him, and we had dinner with him and a bunch of our staff. And we're just talking shop, uh, you know, about the shoulder and, and the throwing arm and, you know, kind of the advances that he has had through his research developing the ASH test. And for people that don't know what the ASH test is, it's the athletic shoulder um, uh, test. And, and essentially you're utilizing a force plate, which I thought was really unique. And this was before I even got exposed to dynamometry in evaluating shoulder strength. Um, and performance from a long lever position, um, which is different from a lot of tests that were done with clinicians that I've seen that were more in a, a short lever test or they were a break test um, or a make test. But this is a, it was just definitely a great area to explore. And we communicated uh, off and on over a series of years. And then we have a mutual friend named Tim Pelote who is the director of high performance for the uh, Olympic uh, volleyball and water polo teams um, in strength and conditioning. And he put together this group that was just fantastic called the shoulder shindig group during the pandemic. You know, we were all kind of going crazy. We weren't, you know, we didn't have our athletes to work with and data to study. And so we, we got together and it was like being, I was just so grateful to be on it because there were all these masterminds. Um, but, uh, as I mentioned prior to the podcast, I don't want to pump up this guy's tires too much, but I really do believe Ben is at the apex of shoulder performance and health. And he's somebody that's really greatly, uh, impacted my career, um, is, has really changed my insights in terms of how, you know, we look at training the, uh, the throwing arm, you know, and we've, we've really talked about this 
before as far as the state of training and assessment where there's this conundrum we're testing strength but we're training endurance and there's a lot left on the table as far as that interplay of, of what we should be doing in our assessment and how we should be looking at programming athletes. So, you know, I want to, I want to turn it over to Ben and, and uh, you know, just, just get him first talking about the ash test, how it was developed, you know, where this all came from. Um, because I just think it's the progeny of how we need to look at the, at the throwing arm in the future and our dynamometer um, really, you know, is going to evolve looking at long lever tests in addition to our, our battery of tests that we currently offer. So, you know, Benny, I'll turn it over to you. Guys, it's a real pleasure to be invited on the podcast. Um, I listened to, I listened to a, a few tasters uh, to see what I was in for today. Um, and I still came on to join you. So, uh, you know, it's a testament. <laughs> Testament to the work that you're doing, but yeah, thanks for that very warm and uh, overwhelming introduction. Um, I mean, I think, yeah, this, this started, a lot of my work comes through working with really good people. That's the main thing to say. And so that shoulder shin digs another example of a brilliant way of networking and sharing ideas with good people. Um, I was for a long time involved with some work with Daniel Cohen, Dr. Daniel Cohen, who is a, a, a a big name in, in force platform technology, set up the company Force Dex. And um, he and I worked together at Arsenal Football Club. Um, he was a consultant coming in to deliver our testing with jumping and a lot of the hamstring testing we did. And so we used to pretty much jump on a conversation every week, maybe twice a week at odd hours, just through our natural geekiness to try and understand what the technology was giving us. And those conversations progressed over a number of years. And he was also working with Saracens Rugby Club, which is a big, big European rugby club um, based in the UK. And the team there were having some problems with their sort of conventional testing. They were using short lever isometric tests using dynamometry. Um, they were looking at different positions. And what they were finding was that the really super strong shoulders, the, sh the shoulders that could bench press 160 kilograms that you know, with ease, they could pass all these short lever tests, would go out onto the pitch into a tackle situation. And when they had to go into those long lever positions, they would break down. So that was the sort of culmination of the, of the problem that needed to be solved. And that's why literally on the back of a beer mat um, overnight, I scribbled some drawings of this kind of what we were doing with the hamstring testing in these kind of short and long lever positions. And then tried to explore how that would look with athletes with a force platform and came in the next day to Arsenal, went upstairs and did some pilot work on my athletic self. Um, and it seemed to make sense. And uh, from that point then through this really sharp team, so Paddy Hogben, strength conditioning coach, Laura Tullock, the physiotherapist there, Daniel Cohen uh, as a sort of consultant overseeing what we were doing. And then Nav Singh who helped us with the data we started to test more and more shoulders and we picked up some really nice stuff very early on where we found some historical deficits in basically rugby players who'd had surgeries. They had maybe some short-term acute neck injuries that were reducing force production. And we seemed to find that this long lever test, the ASH test filled, you know, a knowledge space. There was something there about it that other tests weren't able to see or find. And so that's, 
then progressed. We did a sort of non-sexy reliability paper, which is the publication you, you sort of alluded to. We had to do that to sort of show that that worked and it came out really well that, you know, there was high, high levels, excellent levels of reliability in the test. And so once we knew it worked, when we're looking at peak forces through the shoulder, um, we were able to then sort of share that information with everybody in the wider community. And that was always my intention was to you know, develop something that we could um, hopefully progress the field. And since then, it's just grown and grown. And I mean, virals probably are not good, not a good word through the lockdown, but um, basically people were contacting me from all over the world asking, you know, what were my insights in and around the ash test? What did I know about it? What was normal? Uh, what had I seen in rugby players? Uh, had I used it in volleyball players? You know, and so and so on and so forth. And then, uh, as Ryan said, I was brought in to talk to a lot of teams. Some really sharp people took that on board and have been testing for a while now. So it's gone over into baseball and it's in the NFL and it's you know it's, it's in sort of the highest levels of European rugby and and certainly world rugby and Olympic sport now. And all this work is basically people contacting me and then using what we've learned and applying that in their own space. And some of the great stuff that's actionable is actually from the thought processes developed by other people who were able to use the research to apply it in their own environment. So I, I had a quick question, you know, kind of leading into, you know, the next area is the application. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, in terms of when you're getting these actionable insights, you know, talking maybe some of your nuggets in training and actually, you know, applying the data because the one thing that um, really makes it easy on our end with our particular device is that there is this data-led algorithmic approach to training. We're, we're exporting um, through our platform what you need to do to improve these deficiencies. And uh, I would be really, you know, excited to hear from you, Ben, about, you know, what, what you've been looking for in your data and, and the approaches that you've been taking towards remediating deficiencies and improving performance. Yeah, so the, the beauty of the test actually is with the force platform, it's also capable of really accurately measuring rate of force development as well. So we get not just peak force values, but we get um, rate of force development as well. Now that hasn't been published as a reliability piece, but uh, there's some ongoing master's projects that have looked into that. And there's some excellent reliability when you coach and you, when you uh, familiarize athletes in the right way, you get the best results. So to give you an example, you know, most of this came from this kind of return to play process back at the, back at the start. So how do we know when someone's ready to return to the chaos of rugby and collisions uh, with, say, a you know, shoulder dislocation? Um, and what we saw was that peak force returned quite quickly, but rate of force development was the thing that lagged behind. And we've seen that also in lower limb injuries with hamstrings, with ACLs it tends to be that rate of force development that, you know, doesn't, it takes longer to get back. And that might be around inhibition, willingness to actually produce force quickly, um, all those other pieces of puzzle. But what that means is that as a physio or practitioner working with an athlete, what you can do is you can say, well, look, actually they're strong enough. Their, their peak forces are, you know, some of the highest in the cohort. But when we ask them to produce that force quickly, they're unable to, their rate of force development is below the normals for this group. 
or for these rugby players, as an example. And then what you do is then you change the program. So there's no point hammering at strength then if actually rate of force development is the problem and possibly the limiting factor that's going to stop them being able to protect that shoulder in the right moment at the right time in the right space, you know, and that means that training can look at things like working on, you know, decelerations and catches and faster, um, more plyometric actions and ballistic actions in the shoulder, rather than looking at maybe some more um, traditional loading models. And I think that's a nice example of how you can utilize this, this test to start to um, alter thought processes and alter how you then program for an athlete through a return to play process. Yeah, that, I mean, that's, that's where we're heading in our uh, development of our product as well as looking at the rate of torque. And, you know, the thing is in baseball, the, the time at which you're applying your peak forces for the shoulder are happening from foot contact to ball release. And that's about 150 milliseconds. You know, and so, you know, we, we need to capture the, the elements in terms of how much max strength the athlete has. So baseball is going to be very plyometric. You know, that's just the nature of the sport compared to, uh, to rugby. Um, but we still have to know what are the max strength capacities and then how much force can be developed at 150 milliseconds as a guide. Because I, I think you're right. You know, there is some coaching for the athlete to learn how to push fast and hard. You have to really communicate that all the time so that you get those accurate readings. But um, even when we look at endurance, you know, evaluating endurance and the ability to repeat that rate of torque development or rate of force development, I think is going to be pretty essential to, to performance and not only just health, but velocity, you know, velocity is like the, the main performance relationship that we have to shoulder strength um that i see kind of in the uh coming down the works for us it's going to give us some really interesting data yeah actually on that there's some things i can't talk about but there's some things i can and one of the relationships from that from that shoulder shindig group was chris back at uh university of nebraska and they're going to be probably one of the leading uh, organizations using the ash test and they've only recently sort of taken it on board but they're really they've massively embedded it in the culture of what they're trying to trying to do um, and already what we're seeing there is when we look at you know velocities of of pitchers who are pitching over 90 miles an hour there's a really strong relationship with some of the rfd values at those sort of very short time frames that you're talking about so under 150 milliseconds and certainly you know there's one value I saw recently with a small cohort that's a really strong correlation with the pitching velocity of the RFD in a wide position in the ash test. Um, we've run that. We've run that before with 90 people who'd, th who'd thrown a fastball across a competitive season in a major league organization as well. Um, the correlation, you know, over those 92 players was, you know, not as strong, but it was still pretty strong considering it's a test where ultimately you're lying with your trunk on the floor, you're not using your lower limb. So the fact that there's a, a, a reasonably good relationship between what is essentially a more sort of uh, arm dominant test, if you like, um, is really exciting in itself. I don't know, Jordan, if you have anything to add, I've been kind of hogging this. Yeah, one of the things that I've, I've noticed that's had a lot of success um, 
is I just kind of take an, an, an adaptation of the ash test and I use it as a recovery protocol specifically for my starting pitchers after they, you know, get out of the game, I have them get on the dynamometer and I'll have them do one max, max, uh, max rep. And I'll have them kind of train at 80, 80 to 85% of that max rep for, you know, 10 sets of five or five sets of five, whatever we're programming out. And, you know, this is, this is kind of a question I have since I was, I'm just glad we got you on the podcast was, do you notice that with continued use of the ash test, you see a really quick kind of degradation of that, of that endurance? Cause I've noticed is whether it's a minor leaguer, whether it's a big leaguer, whether it was, you know, a high school or a collegiate guy for me is I've seen reps one pretty good reps two pretty good. And then reps three, four and five, it just, it's almost like it, it's exponentially just that, that endurance kills. And I don't know if that's because I'm doing it post throw as a recovery program, or if that's something you've seen uh, as well. Yeah. I think that's a really sort of insightful view. And it's really great to hear that you're, you're utilizing the sort of thought process around the ash test, which is exactly, exactly what it's all about. It's like how, how people use it in their own environment. What we saw originally with some of the early testing was we saw that if you didn't give a 20 second rest between max efforts, then those would drop off. And so, you know, when, when we're looking at a pure testing or monitoring tool, we want to keep that consistent. When we're doing a reliability paper or reliability study, we want to keep that rest period consistent. But the beauty of that is actually, if you shorten that rest period and you go down to 10 seconds and you look at that repeated effort over time, you've got a fatigue index right there and it's ready for you. So how quickly do they drop off if you do 10 times three second ash tests with a 10 second break? You know, and that could be tapping into that kind of repeat max effort as you, as you kind of describe. I think that's something that's really interesting. It's perhaps more for places where you're, you're um, looking at maybe monitoring or long-term development. Sorry, you're looking at more kind of return to play and more in-depth monitoring or long-term development through a, through a sort of athletic program rather than a sort of, you know, ad hoc monitoring where you get the athletes in and out quickly and you get some actionable data. I think that in that case, you know, you probably don't want to cook their shoulder. Uh, you just want that kind of nice, nicely positioned, well-timed um, window into that athletic state at that point in their sort of maybe their competitive throwing program. Yeah. For awesome. me, I, I mean, for me, I, I, I like doing, the isometrics, you know, post throwing as a part of the training. And, and I've been doing some reading into how isometrics are actually great uh, pain modulators. And, um, you know, it's interesting because in baseball, when guys come out of games, they want to get, they want to start doing isotonic training right away. You know, and you, you don't have to get me started on cuff weights and things that I find, you know, dumbbells at three pounds. You already know I can talk to you until I'm blue in the face about some of the inefficiencies of using those uh, those tools that don't irradiate the muscle and, and are really not high load. But getting into isometrics, you know, even our tests, our tests can be training specific, you know, and, and uh, the variation of, of, you know, our ASH test is essentially you know, we have to make it field specific. So they're in a half kneeling position um, in an upright trunk, you know, transferring force in, the, in these long lever positions. And we call them priming too. I mean, utilizing this before games as well, 
to, to prime the muscle, you know, obviously not being on the verge of fatigue, we're, we're, we're only doing two reps essentially from pushing on the front and the back and that's coming in our app, but there's a lot to be gained as far as reducing pain, you know, and you think if you start their training session with some sort of isometric training, the arm feels much better when you want to load it. You know, we, we want to get to a point where we're, you know, the training and one of the guys at our company says it best, Matt Unthank, and he, he just said the training for the arm should not look like rehabilitation. You know, there should be some, you know, some element of grit. You know, sometimes guys are going to have to clamp down and, and, you know, there's, there's, we want to bulletproof the arm and people don't get biomechanically, you know, the, the throwing loads are over body weight after ball release like it basically put your you know myself at 220 pounds on the tip of my fingers and that is the force that i need to utilize to restrain my arm flying out with all my rotator cuff muscles and the muscles that you know are secondary to those and and compressing the shoulder joint you know how you can you can do this i think is by improving your isometric component you know and i think one of the things I see in your training, Ben, that I really like is you do a lot of yielding isometrics, you know, and I've done that with athletes as well. And for those who don't know what yielding isometrics is, it's basically not allowing weight to fall to the ground. So for example, if I had a 10 pound dumbbell in my athlete's arm and they're, li- they're standing next to the wall in a 90 position, at zero degrees internal rotation. So basically, or external rotation, my palm is facing the floor and my arm is raised to 90 degrees. I'm holding that weight, you know, I'm not letting that weight pull my arm down, you know, so I'm getting a yielding isometric of my external rotator cuff. And I think that, you know, we're gonna be getting to a place where, you know, we need to train that way. And uh, in, in the pictures that I've done certain things with, you know, heavier band work, you know, you know, basically walk backs being external rotation, heavy band work, heavy resistance. There's a little bit of grit in their face. And, and I'm getting a lot of rewards from the guys that I'm working with because they feel that their arm is less sore and they recover faster. So I know I've talked, I know I've talked a lot about, you know, how this can come into play, but I do see isometrics as being a recovery modality on my end. I, I, I would agree with that. And I'm sure Ben's got a ton more information than I can throw in on there, but I've had really good success in getting guys to bounce back to full strength using dynamometry quicker by implementing isometrics. And then one of the things I like doing is I'll, is I'll have guys even go into a pull-up and they'll just do isometrics and hold and then give a good eccentric on the way down is kind of that, that post throw recovery. And I've noticed it's increasing recovery i'm measuring you know once once a day with these guys by about 24 hours yeah i think there's so much to be said i mean you're preaching to the converted here because isometrics is definitely a is definitely one of the biggest tools that i would use and i think the beauty of it is that you know you can control the position the setup start posture that the athlete's in you can see whether they're compensating or cheating a lot easier than when you're doing some more dynamic work. Plus the loads are less intense than say doing some eccentric work, you know, a yielding isometric 
by its nature is sort of eccentric in its in its sort of muscle action from a physiological level um and we were doing stuff with the rugby players at one of the teams in the uk harlequins and a couple of the guys there were, were getting players to hold 16 to 18 percent of body weight in the hand they actually had to pass the dumbbell into the player's hand and they'd hold it for five seconds without yielding without letting go and then they'd go around their warm-up and go and do something else and come back and do another one and they'd do six of those in their warm-up prior to a collision session um some of the work that i am doing currently as a consultant in baseball and we're measuring um you know shoulder force production across a competitive season and there's a few really nice single case studies around a lot of data that we've collected and as an example we saw one pitcher who had external rotation force had dropped off internal rotation force was continuing to improve with with uh, just the throwing normal throwing program as it tends to do and the day before they pitched in a sort of preseason game in, in spring training, they had this massive drop off and a real imbalance between the external and internal rotation force production. The next day they pitched, they had to pull out the game with shoulder soreness. But over the next three days, all they did was some heavy isometrics. Those exactly as Ryan described those, yeah, probably somewhere around 12% body weight in the arm, not, not up to the sort of, rugby levels of 16 to 18%. But that was enough not only to take those force scores back up to their sort of start of spring training values, it was enough to actually rocket them up to a much higher place within three days. And they were back pitching again, you know, on a sort of five-day rotation and their scores were maintained. And I think it just shows you, Ryan, a little bit, it talks to some of the stuff you've said there around the sort of pain modulation the capacity to reduce the inhibition something there around that player was allowing him to develop internal rotation force but external was dropping off now was that some subclinical pathology was that some you know small soreness that they were sort of managing whatever it was the effect of that sort of neural potent neural stimulus was enough to engage and recruit and allow them to access their full capacity and part of that, I think, is down to that kind of analgesic effect that you get from the Ebony Rio and her group have described with the lower limb. Yeah, I, I mean, so I, I'm going to ask you next before we get into this section, I'm just going to make a comment that, you know, one of the things I want to identify the gaps in what I've seen with the clinical aspect of working with a baseball player. So, you know, you present a good indicator that you know, when an athlete has shoulder soreness, okay, typically in the professional world, there's a fear, right? There's a concept of like, we will do no harm to the athlete through our programming, you know, um, strength and conditioning gets a little bit more aggressive because we want to be able to stimulate the athlete to make advances. So there's some, some stress there, but what you're telling me is what I think athletes need to do first is differentiate, you know, is this a tendon problem? Because if they're doing isometrics and they're getting an analgesic effect, it's a good differentiator, a differentiator, you know, in diagnosis to know, is this, a, is this a rotator cuff tendon problem, you know, from something else and getting the athlete into the isometric kind of milieu of, of training right away, I think, um, 
you know, like what you said, you're this living testament. It can get the athlete to return faster, you know, and, and, and there's never going to be a pitcher in the history of the game that will never have soreness in throwing. It just doesn't happen. I mean, research even shows that 50% of all pitchers are going to be sidelined. So, you know, in the, in the United States, there's like 16 million baseball players. Uh, let's just say, you know, half of those are pitchers. You know, that's going to be 8 million people that are going to eventually be out of competition for an arm injury. You know, that's, that's going to happen. And so we need to come up with better ways that we can get to the training right away. You know, there's, there's this weakness and um, you know, I'm, I love what I'm hearing with you and, and the work you've done with that team is to be able to show a new pathway that uh, you can take into the practices of physical therapy, strength and conditioning, athletic therapy um, to get the jump start on remediating any strength deficiencies. Because if our, if our initial reaction is he's sore, let's do nothing with him. Now, what we're, what we're doing is we're really prolonging the inflammatory cycle. We're prolonging training because the athlete isn't, we're not doing things to reduce pain and still give stimulus. You know, I've talked to some people and maybe it was you, Ben, there's, there's been some people, I think in uh, the lower body world might be Glenn Stewart. Another guy has been in AFL, real well-known guy, but when that, when a Hammond's hamstring injury occurs, they put the athlete in a non-provocative joint position. They have them do light level isometrics right away to, to start to, you know, start reducing pain, bridging strength, you know, help, helping some of the fiber qualities. And so I kind of want to, cause you've, you've been inside the walls of professional baseball. You've seen some things, you know, obviously do not give names, but I really want to see from your perspective, where do you see their gaps in knowledge in practice from the training side, the sports medicine side, in your opinion? Because I know I've talked a little bit about it, but, um, you know, you, you've been, you know, invited into some of these teams. And I'm curious, you know, if you're getting given audit, you know, what, what, what do you come up with? <laughs> yeah, I think I, I just want to sort of just sort of, clarify like one one thing i think the beauty of coming from a physiotherapy physical therapy background and then going through into sort of doing strength conditioning the reason for doing that in the first place was because i was sort of underwhelmed with how far physiotherapy could actually take someone through the whole continuum of return to performance and i was working with some brilliant strength conditioning coaches and that's what led me down the route of really challenging my own thinking around loading um and so I will always start with this do no harm approach of like, okay, we've got to screen out these things, look at them clinically, et cetera, make sure that we look at appropriate uh, radiographic um, evaluation to make sure there's nothing serious. But once we've, once we've cleared that, then really it's a case of, well, what is best? For, is it a passive lie on a bed and get some treatment or is it an active, what can we do um, to get some load? And specifically around tendon stuff, we know that, all those other things are just adjuncts. They're just the one percenters that allow us to do a good loading program, which is the thing that's going to help them. You know, so I think that that's really important to quantify. Like, so the thing to say about the baseball teams that I've been involved with is largely it's sort of self-selects. It's, it's, it's the people who reach out and want to talk to me are the people who are really forward thinking and they're looking for an advantage and they're looking for something that's going to help them. So 
you know, I'm working with teams. I'm not working just with strength and conditioning coaches. I'm not just working with athletic trainers. I'm working with performance teams. And there's really nice, it's, it's really good to see there's a really nice interaction between performance teams in terms of how this is managed, you know, athletic trainers collecting data um, and then applying, you know, heavy isometric loading pro protocols to their athletes is, you know, is fantastic from my side because that's the sort of uh, way that I like to work as well. So we've, we've hit on the main, the main thing there is that I don't think shoulders are loaded heavy enough. Like that would be one of my um, biggest considerations because we worry so much about, you know, high forces, but essentially why is a shoulder going to break down? Shoulders probably not going to break down because it's not moving really nicely through, you know, a rotation pattern at low resistance. It's probably going to break down because at the key points within the throwing action, when there's high accelerations, high torques, you know, high velocities, high forces, you know, that's where they're going to break down. And so we've got to make sure that we get in enough load into those players that when they have to use it in the shoulder, that they've got that buffer against sort of the forces that they're going to have to produce. And, you know, that's, I think, one of the biggest things I see um, as, as, a, as a potential gap or at least, you know, a refreshing movement towards um, adopting this kind of philosophy, I think, is something that's it's progressing and some places are doing it better than others. Yeah, one of the things, you know, you kind of touched on another area, and I was very fortunate when working with the Los Angeles Angels to be in a position that was interdepartmental as the director of performance integration. Um, and I had Jordan involved with me as the pitching analyst, you know, and he was observing a lot of the, uh, the medical data and the biomechanical data. And, and, you know, you're really communicating that there is a very strong collaborative effort, it sounds like with the teams that have been bringing you in and, and people are all, you know, they're hungry for this knowledge and information and, um, and working together and communicating with the strength and the, and the medical side. And, you know, that's, that's kind of, you know, I wanted to bring this back to our app because that's something that I think is important and would help people like you help organizations having a central place to look at the data and understanding what the key metrics mean, um, to communicate from, because, uh, that, that could be a potential place of breakdown. You know, usually what happens in, in the pro sports setting, and it could happen in college too, is that you have your strength camp that's like increase load, increase load, increase load. And then you have the medical side that's decrease load, decrease load, decrease load. And sometimes they don't have commonality in the data together. And um, I think too, you being in there, uh, with these teams and being an intermediary is very helpful. And that's something that, you know, we electronically want to be able to replicate is, is get people bridged together, you know, and learn, um, you know, what, what kinds of things that they need to do collaboratively to remediate an athlete, you know, because the goal is how fast can we bring an athlete back to their baseline or, or make them even more superior? You know, that's, that's the common goal, you know, and it maybe is a combination of increasing load and redu reducing load. Um, but I, I think, you know, what you're telling me is, you know, I think clinicians have an unbelievable qualitative sense. You know, if you put your hands on an athlete, you are going to feel things so much more differently than I would. 
you know, so having that piece is super important, but we also have to have the objective information, you know, the, the data-driven information, being able to combine those together, um, I think creates for a beautiful program. I'm sure what you're doing when you're with these teams is they're starting to bridge those connections, you know, and, and uh, I think that too is what's going to ad advance the industry, in my opinion. Yeah, a hundred percent. The the ability to share that data, you know, transparently across the whole performance team, so that anybody involved in that athlete's care and return to play, or you know, just general monitoring of their the healthy athlete, you know, to be able to have that available and to be able to trust that data. So there's, I suppose, there's also this kind of evolution of teams around this how they handle the information. You know, it takes about takes about three years to you know, weave a decent monitoring process into the fabric of an organization. And that's something that I've seen across, you know, a number of different roles now when I was the British judo head, head physio, it took about three years before the Olymp London Olympics. When I went into Arsenal and we were looking at mit mitigating against hamstring injuries, it took us about another three years before, you know, it's just the three year rule, right? <laughs> and the reason for that is there's probably around six months where you really can't press the go button on this data because you don't know what it's telling you. And you've got to buy in and play the long game where you're looking at a long-term surveillance, understand what these tests are telling you about your athletes, understand what that means, you know, what's the sort of bandwidth of what looks like normal, what's strong and what's weak. And I think the other thing that you know I've seen and, and, and the best teams are doing that separates them for the rest is that they're combining some of their data they've had for a long time, like lower limb data jumps, uh, you know, ISO mid thigh pull. And then they're combining that with the upper limb data and looking at almost like a reductionist model of, well, okay, can you generate good force production from the ground? And then, you know, have you got enough force capacity to decelerate the arm or, or you know, mitigate or basically um, decelerate those forces? that you are able to produce in the ground. And when you look at those and you plot those on a kind of quadrant, you'll see players that just aren't accessing enough lower limb strength or force production, and therefore they're overloading the arm and vice versa. You know, we're probably producing too much lower limb force and then, you know, the, the arm can't cope with it. And those teams are the ones that found some really interesting um, cases. And I think that's where the, this, kind of, this kind of work in monitoring is going to go and looking at how that force transfer is captured is probably one of the biggest advances I've seen. Yeah, that's uh, that's a really incredibly important feature of sports science. So we we call that. I mean, what what Ben's talking about is something called causal inferences. So it's basically in a it's a, a correlation between a change in one variable and a change in another. Uh, in, in a simplistic terms, but you know, that's important because you're right when we're connecting and this is where we want to get to is connect all these different elements, subjective scores, competitive information, um, you know, even percentile ranking of ability into understanding, you know, how this manifests into changes in arm strength, you know, gives us more of a global pers perspective because I know you said reductionist, but I think it's very uh, more complex you know, when we're looking at, yeah. you know, all these determinants uh, in an athlete of what changes their arm strength, you know, and we, you know, we are focused if, if, if for us, 
we're really focused on the distal chain. We know that there's going to be changes. Everybody's going to be different in their movement, their anatomy, um, their interrelation with it, with, you know, regional interdependence from their body, their lower body, their, their midsection, their upper body and the shoulder. But we want to make sure that that part of our kinetic chain is really strong. So I also think in the future, understanding what weakens it is going to be an important process to, to our performance programs, you know, in the future. So I, I really love hearing that, you know, that kind of those insights, you know, we need to get to better. We, we have some metrics that we look at as like the strength velocity ratio, you know, now how, how are physiology and competitive data connecting together? You know, is it, does an athlete have an appreciable amount of strength relative to their velocity? Because that's also a, an important hinging factor for us. Cause if they don't, we know velocity is a risk factor for injury. So I can see all these different things happening in the, in the future. It'd be unbelievable to have a large collaborative effort for us, you know, seeing how our, our uh, tool works and um, how people like yourself and other masters in the field of, of overhand performance, you know, can put our heads together and really dive in and, and figure out what changes are, matter and how quickly we can execute on them. Yeah, I think that the stuff largely parallels um, largely parallels the lower limb uh, work that's gone on. So around hamstrings, you know, we know that if you've got higher force produ production in hamstrings, it's your likelihood of sustaining a hamstring injury in, in field-based sports, as an example. Um, you know, the other thing that helps, as well as sort of Nordic hamstring training or other ways, there are other ways of loading a hamstring, of course. Um, but... The other thing is actually running fast, you know, running yeah. at 90, 90 to 95% of your maximum has a, has a protective capacity. So, you know, if you're looking at replicating that within the throwing arm, actually throws protect you against throwing fast. But as long as you've got enough strength or force production capacity in the background, if you don't, and then you repeatedly throw, then that's going to suffer throughout a training block or through a competitive season. And, you know, that thought process is something that we've looked at um, with, uh, with a lot of sort of football uh, studies and field-based hockey and other things where we see the strongest athletes basically sustain performance for longer throughout competitive cycles. Um, and I think we're going to see something very, very similar when we do some studies around that with, with the throwing arm. Nice. I mean, for me, I got no further questions because you hit the nail on the head. You said strength matters most. <laughs> is what I'm getting from it. And so I, I don't turn it over to Jordan or Bart, but I'm going to keep my mouth shut because that was a good clincher for me. Yeah. I got a ton of notes. Um, like always, whenever I hear him talk or read something he's put out, I, I, I get a lot of, a lot of, a lot of things that I want to start trying off of it. So I, I really appreciate the time. Fantastic. Agree. Well, Ben, I was just going to say thank you. Um, I think we could do it again down the road. I'm sure we're going to have some questions around this. And, um, you know, like I was saying, uh, you know, we want to hear your questions. If you're listening to this and, and thinking about, hey, how do I apply this? What do I do here? Definitely submit your questions um, and we'll, um, we'll get them answered one way or another. Uh, like I said, you should check out Ben's podcast as well called Informed Performance uh, that he co-produces uh, if you want to dive into this a little more. And uh Ben, you got anything else to say before we get out of here? No, I could carry on the conversation. It's been a it's been a real pleasure. Really enjoyed it.
Yeah, definitely. Uh, we enjoyed it as well. Until next time, take care.